This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman. And on this week's show, I have a very special guest, Sarah Turney. She is a sister of Alyssa Turney. And if you've been paying attention to anything in the true crime world this week, you will know that she has been back in the news. Her case is extremely personal, and I had the luxury and opportunity to speak with her one-on-one about her sister's case and what she believes happened to Alyssa. So join me this week as I speak one-on-one with the Sarah Turney, sister of Alyssa Turney. I am so lucky to be joined this week by Sarah Turney, who has a very personal story to tell. And thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of My Fashion Case, Sarah. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. So what is it that brings you to the show this week? Yeah, of course. Um, What brings me here is my sister. I I have a missing sister and her name is Alyssa Turney and I'm trying to get as much exposure for her as I can. Now, you have been uh, making the rounds on a number of shows and the story that you've had, you've been putting out there. How long have you been out there with the story about your sister? About three years now. Yeah, it all started with uh, John Lorden and Brain Scratch on YouTube and really just escalated from there. First of all, if you're the listener, what is it, one, give me a little background about the story, and two, what led you to the belief where you stand today? Absolutely. Um, and of course, it's it's a long story that could take hours and hours to tell, so I'll give you a very high-level overview of it. Um, but essentially, Alyssa went missing in 2001. Um, our father picked her up early from school that day, and no one ever saw her again. The police didn't do much, really, until 2006, when a gentleman falsely confessed to her murder. But they, um, of course, quickly ruled that out, and then they started focusing on our father, um, and the circumstances were just overwhelming. We essentially found out that he had been sexually abusing Alyssa since she was about nine years old. Alyssa had actually gone to a teacher and said, I'm having sex with my dad, and unfortunately, it was not reported. But 
what we found out was, like I said, just this massive amount of circumstantial evidence against him. So the police also find this out. Two of the main pieces really that are missing from this story that we really need are some surveillance issues. So essentially, my father had been recording every phone call going in and coming out of the house um, since the 1970s. But the phone call that Alyssa supposedly made a week after she left is not recorded. We also had video surveillance inside the home and out. There were actually hidden cameras inside of our living room vent that we eventually became aware of, but the uh, video surveillance from the day Alyssa was missing is also gone. So the police issue a search warrant around 2008 to look for this in in hopes of getting this audio and this video. And they don't find that. But what they do find is um, the largest pipe bomb and gun bust in Phoenix history. Really? Yeah. um, So I forget how many guns there were, but there were a bunch of illegal silencers in addition to 26 pipe bombs found inside the house with a manifesto titled uh, Diary of a Madman Martyr, in which he outlined a, a scheme to use these bombs. Jeez. So real quick, the first thing that stood out to me in that description was it didn't come on the radar until 2006. So what happened between 2001 and 2006 was, I mean, she was reported missing, I'm assuming. And what was going on during that time? There was just nothing. It was just completely cold. Essentially. So there's a little bit of movement. Um, He did report her missing that night at about 11 p.m. He reported her as a runaway. um, And he said that she was a known drug user because she smoked pot and said that he knew where she was going, that she was going to California to be with our aunt. So the way he reported it elicited no type of search for her. And they just really didn't do much until the year, I want to say, I think it was 2000. Three, when my father starts really reaching out to the police himself and saying that they should be looking into this lead or that lead, and he points it um, to he points it to the people that he writes his manifesto about. It's this large conspiracy that he's had his whole life that the electrical union was out to get him. It's a union he worked for, and he also reported some unsafe working conditions. And although I believe that he was probably harassed a little bit, I don't think it went to the point of this grand conspiracy that he thought it would. So he tells the police that it's the union and the union or the police actually start looking into his leads. So essentially between 2001 and 2006, not a lot is done besides matching Alyssa's, you know, identifying characteristics to unidentified bodies, as well as them pursuing these leads that were given to them by my father. So basically he could have easily been just sending them on a fool's errand, even though he knew the truth. Yeah, I believe that's exactly what happened. I mean, every lead they checked out um, that he gave them was not viable. As far as the discovery of the pipe bombs and the guns and the manifesto, his paranoia about his job, do you think that is what drove that? I think it's a huge part of it. Yeah, I mean, he was majorly paranoid. Everything was a conspiracy. Everyone was out to get him. I mean, he said all those cliche things to me when I was growing up, you know, look out for men in dark suits and dark cars. Like these are real quotes I would get from him. Um, But he was absolutely paranoid. Yeah. So he's your biological father. Yes. So yeah, he's my biological father, but not Alyssa's biological father. Um, Indeed, it is her stepfather. Okay. That definitely makes a difference to a degree. Now, as far as when this occurred in 2006 how old would you have been at that time i would have been i'm so bad at math i was definitely an english major um (laughs) that made me i think you know 16 17 okay so you were a teenager going through all of this yeah so when Alyssa went missing in 2001 i was 12 and she was 17 oh that must have been so hard to go through i mean I, i mean obviously but not to say the 
obvious, but did your suspicions about your father come into play or like right away? Or was that something that you didn't think of until it was brought to your attention in 2006? It, it took quite a while. Um, it wasn't even 2006 or 2008 or when he was arrested for these bombs. I mean, it took a long time. When he first got arrested, I went out and made a petition and I made a website called Free Michael Turney because I thought that there was no way that he could have hurt Alyssa. But in 2009, after he was arrested, ABC 2020 did an hour-long special on Alyssa's case. And although I had heard some of these things before, hearing it from the television, as well as, you know, hundreds of people commenting online, really made me think. You know, it made me, I think, more open to the idea that he could have been involved. But it wasn't all at once. It was really gradual over time. It was just something that kind of sunk into me. And I started asking him when he was in prison. I would talk to him all the time. Mm -hmm. So I flat out asked him, you know, I said, this looks suspicious. I don't understand. I'm confused. And he didn't say, you know, no, sweetie, of course it wasn't me. Oh my goodness, I could have never done that. He just blew it off and wouldn't directly answer my questions. But then, yeah, I, I came around and as soon as I did, I told the police that and they were, you know, excited and asked me to ask him questions. And they said that they were going to prosecute when he was released from prison. Gosh, that is, what a weird and terrible position to put yourself, I mean, not to put yourself in, but to be in. I mean, you're still a teenager and you're having yeah. to go through all that. Like, that's just, that's just awful. And it's your father. What was your relationship like? I mean, did you not get along with him at all? I mean, was, was there strain in your relationship with your dad before any of this? So, I mean, there was typical strain of me being a bratty teenager and not thinking he cared enough, which was the theme of my whole um, growing up with him, to be honest. So, I mean, me and my dad were kind of best friends, to be honest. Like, after Alyssa was gone, he got really sick with this unexplained illness that he got countless tests for for years and years and years and they could never tell him what was wrong but during that time I really became his caretaker you know I would make sure he had meals in bed and I would take him to the doctors and you know I started driving at the age of like 15 like he got me a car so I could take him to doctor's appointments and do the grocery shopping and really take over the responsibilities of the household which you know honestly I was happy to do like I had always been a very independent child with with no rules unlike Alyssa you know he he watched everything Alyssa did he would watch her at work he would conduct surveillance on her, record her phone calls. She had very strict rules, including she couldn't like walk alone after dark. And here I am 15, you know, in the west side of Phoenix at 2 a.m. with my friends in my car. Like it, it was very different. But at the time, I thought he was really cool. You know, he bought me a mini fridge and filled it with beer. It, it was cool to me. Of course, looking back now, I'm, I'm 31 and um, I realize that that's not love and that's not good parenting. But at the time, he was my best friend. I thought he was so cool and that he loved me and that he actually was looking for Alyssa, which I don't think any of that's true now. That's a tough realization. You were going through all of this and like you said, he was the cool dad. You're, so you thought. What happened to you when you started to think otherwise? Um, I mean, when I really, really realized and told the police what I thought, it was kind of like a switch for me. Like I didn't want him in my life anymore. I didn't think of him as a good person, obviously, anymore. I don't know. It was very black and white to me. It wasn't 
it wasn't something I really went back and forth on when I really thought it was him. It was just kind of automatic. I mean, Alyssa raised me. Like, he was there and bought me things and, you know, took me to the movies and stuff like that. But the person who gave me rules and structure and made sure I did my homework and made sure I didn't look like an idiot when I was going out of the house and, you know, taught me things with Alyssa. So overall, my loyalty is to her over anyone. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I mean, my sister was two years older than I than I am. And yeah, five years. I mean, you definitely have a, a real kind of parental look to them, you know, feel like they're there to protect you. Like they've got your back no matter what. And I mean, that's just uh, that's just awful. What was Alyssa like? Uh, Alyssa was really cool. Um, and like I said, she she looked over me, right? So she was very strong. She was very much the girl that, you know, if anybody messed with me, she was going to go down to the school and beat them up. Um, but then she was also really caring and really sweet. Like one of the last memories of Alyssa is, you know, and again, I'm 12 and she's 17 and she comes to my door and she knocks on it and she has, you know, Sarah, you want to play Barbies? And I yell at her and tell her to go away. And it's like, it's this bittersweet memory, obviously. Like I, mm-hmm. I obviously wish I did things different, but that's just how we were and how she was. She was super sweet and caring, but also took no crap and was really strong and, and taught me both those things. Um, but she was amazing. And now that I know so much about how horrible her childhood was, she's even more amazing to me. I can only imagine what that, the realization of what she went through. Do you think it was because of the fact that you were biological that you didn't receive any of this abuse? I think that's part of it. I, I think it was a very complicated situation and that my father set it up in such a way that if anyone were to come to the house and question us, which, you know, Child Protective Services did. Our aunts did question him and ask him, and he was, you know, getting questioned about how he was raising us. Um, But I think he set it up in such a way that if someone were to ask Alyssa what it was like in the house, she would say it was horrible, that she was being abused, and that she was being watched over, and that her rules were very, very overbearing, which is all true. But if they were to ask me, I would have said it was great. And then my dad was amazing and that he didn't abuse me and that he didn't hurt me. And then my older sister was mean and out of control. Um, I think it was really orchestrated that way. Wow. As far as like the surveillance goes, you said you didn't know about it at the time. Or, or were you aware of some of it? So I eventually became aware of it. Like we had the cameras on the outside, right? Which is, you know, the year 2000, 2001. That's and pretty at that great. time you just think, yeah, you think like, oh, how cool is this? Like, mm-hmm. I can see my front door. This is awesome. Um, you just feel like very like spy kids, gadgety. Um, but he came to me one day and said, I need you to watch this or watch. I, you know, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he showed me a video of Alyssa making out with a boy on the couch. And the point of view was from inside of our living room vent, you know, up near the ceiling pointing down towards the couch. And you can literally see the grates of the metal vent. Um, And that's when I found out about that camera. And, you know, if you would have asked me a year ago, I would have said Alyssa didn't know about it. But now that I've gone through the case files for myself and I've interviewed people myself, um, she absolutely knew. And she believed that there were more cameras and more audio devices. Like she would be talking in her room with friends whispering because she was sure that my dad had something in there. That is absolutely scary to think that you're living in a surveillance state within your own house and you have to mind your P's and Q's because you don't know who's listening or you know who's listening and you just don't know where. I mean, that is... exactly. And you were unaware of this at the time. I mean, that is just, oh, man. Well, and one of the creepiest parts about it is, you know, once Alyssa was gone, 
my dad asked me if I wanted to move into the master bedroom, which of course I'm 12. Yes, I do. Thanks. And um, the monitors for the video cameras were in the master bedroom. And I asked him, I said, hey, you know, that camera was to watch Alyssa, right? Can we take it down? And he said, yeah. So like the second she was gone, like that surveillance stopped. So it wasn't for me. It wasn't for the safety of his family or for his kids. It was specifically to watch Alyssa. That is very scary. Now, what about your mother at this time? Or is she? Yeah. So, I mean, my mom could be a whole story in itself, right? Um, But unfortunately, she did pass away when we were quite young. Okay. It was um, 1993. I'm very sorry. Oh, that's okay. Um, I was four and Alyssa was um, seven or eight at the time. I'm sorry. And um, yeah, my whole life, you know, um, she she passed away of cancer. It was lung lung and bone cancer. Um, And I always thought that was kind of end of story. But when I started digging through the case files and talking to people, what I found was documentation that my father um, was never fired from his job around this time, like he says, but he quit. You know, he quit his job knowing that his life insurance and his health insurance would expire at the end of the month. And wouldn't you know it, my mom died one day before all those policies were due to expire. That's very coincidental. And I, I feel for you in that regard. My father died of lung cancer and brain cancer and i was older but i losing oh, a, losing a parent is i apologize for bringing that up but it it's uh it's okay. uh, it's, it's it sucks you know i mean it just yeah. it changes everything and do you think that when your mother passed that your father became a different person i no no you know i thought for a long time that that's where he really broke but now i think it wasn't him changing i think it was him shifting his obsessive behavior from her to Alyssa because this type of like extremely controlling aggressive behavior and you know uh, he has a pattern of sexually abusing women like all of this dates back to the 1970s I'm finding you know long before Alyssa was even born so he has this huge track record of treating women like this in you know very similar ways and I think it just went right from my mom to Alyssa so he actually had abused your mother. Um, there are rumors of that, um, but more specifically, he had actually sexually assaulted um, her sister, as oh. well as his other ex-wife's sister. So he just has this pattern of, like I said, being controlling and sexually abusing women. Um, but yeah, there are rumors, you know, that he was physically abusive with my mother, according to her best friend. There, there, there are no words that can justify that sucks. <laughs> yeah, that well, and I, I hate to. Yeah. I mean, and I don't enjoy throwing all these people in the mix and throwing them under the bus and bringing up things from the 1970s. But what I hope it proves is that Alyssa was not the first. And I very much doubt that she was the last. Well, I think that's one of the things that is very important about being open and honest and out there like you are on all the different shows that you've been on and, you know, your own your own stuff. It's important for people to realize that, look, you thought your life was fabulous. I mean, you thought you had the greatest dad and turns out it wasn't that way. And they can easily pull the wool over your eyes because you don't know you're a kid. I mean, you're a kid. That's putting a lot of pressure on on a teenager and to be 12 and to have your sister go missing. You're almost going on 20 years now of dealing with this. And I mean, do you feel like the technology, like where do you feel like when you became an advocate, like when did you become, have you always been this way? Have you always been, I'm going to find the answer? Or did you have like a, where you just woke up one day and said, no, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this to the forefront. 
Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a progression with a, a call to action given to me at the end. But I mean, at first, no, I didn't do anything. I didn't even help my dad hand up flyers. Um, I thought that she'd be back. I thought that she was really mad and that she left because I believed everything my dad said. But then over the years, um, I wasn't outspoken about it. But what I would do is put her flyers in everything that I mailed out. So um, at a very young age, I actually started like an eBay business. I, I was a very eccentric child, but I would get hundreds of orders a year and I would put a missing poster in every single one of those orders. Hundreds um, of orders? Yeah. You're a entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, you get scrappy when you don't have a lot of money. So what are you selling? So I actually um, sold t-shirt transfers. So I, I could buy a pack of like Office Max and turn a sheet that cost me 25 cents into like $25. Um, wow. That's impressive. So, yeah. I mean, I was trying to save money um, and go to college, which thank goodness I did. But, but yeah, so my advocacy efforts were very mute in the beginning. Um, and then when ABC 2020 approached me and said, do you want to, you know, do an episode about your sister? I absolutely, yes, this is amazing. But I still didn't know what I was doing. I was just kind of excited that everything was happening around me. Um, but flash forward to 2017, um, my father's released from prison and they tell me, oh, you know, we were going to prosecute, but now we're not. So your best chance is to get media exposure. Um, so that directive came right from the police and that's exactly what I'm still doing today. So that's really when it amped up and I went crazy and just reached out to literally everyone I could think of and every suggestion anybody gave me, I um, was absolutely willing to do so. Yeah, it was just this huge snowball effect. Thank goodness more people started picking it up and now it's getting big and I'm really excited about that. I think also having podcasting, uh, true crime being kind of the, I don't know, the topic du, du jour um, also helps keep attention to cases like this. It's important to not focus on the cases that have been solved, in my opinion, because yes, they're interesting and sure you could look into certain things and say, okay, yeah, we can learn from this. But the cases that are unsolved and that need to be, people need to be brought to justice, basically. I think yeah. that's where it all stands in my opinion. Oh, I feel exactly the same way. Well, and now I have, you know, my podcast, Voices for Justice, and it was never supposed to feature Alyssa's case. It was supposed to feature other cases like mine where someone is fighting for justice, whether that be a missing person or a wrongful conviction or wrongful death, just cases like that. And then I was very much pushed by other creators and some life circumstances to create the podcast for myself. And um, yeah, I got the case records and I could not believe how much of the story I did not know. So it's only been like six months that I actually read these files for myself and realized how much of the story was missing in the media. I can definitely imagine that you feel like if you control the narrative, then the story itself will kind of fall into place and hopefully, you know, people be held accountable for, you know, for their misdeeds. Do you feel... As far as like being an advocate for your sister, has that changed the way that you approach the rest of your life? I mean, have you become more of a advocate all around or how do you feel about that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed so many aspects of my life. You know, one blessing is that small inconveniences don't feel like much these days. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. um, even something like losing a job 
doesn't phase me like it used to. Um, just big things like that, losing a dog or a broken nail or a flat tire. Like it's just, it's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things anymore. So it's really great that I have this huge mission to go on. Um, but yeah, I mean, every story I see, especially when it comes to the police, you know, a huge part of the story that's never been told is like how much the police have lied to me. And I don't mean like, I feel like they're lying. I mean, I have audio of them saying one thing and an email of them saying another. And it was shocking to me. And that really rocked my whole world. I mean, I worked with these detectives for 10 years. They came to my house. I interviewed them for my college newspaper. They pet my dogs and asked me my favorite movie, like, which all of these I see now are, you know, obviously police tactics, but it felt very real. And for them to completely turn their backs and then lie about things that happened and things that they said, it, it's really scary. Like, it's terrifying for me. Um, so yeah, I look at everything differently now and I'd certainly look at what the police do a lot more closely and yeah, I mean, it's changed everything. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine that the way you approach your daily life in general, just everything's different as far as like you said that you're going to CrimeCon this year, right? Yeah, I will be there. All right. Are you going to be on podcast row? Yes, I will. Um, and at least one live show and hopefully a larger panel with another creator. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, we were, it's definitely one of those, like, as you said, you, you were there last year, but were you, were you, were you there as a guest or were you there for, for a podcast? I was there with the Missing Alyssa podcast. Okay. So I was, yeah, I was essentially a podcast to them. Okay. So, uh, so this would be what your second time going or did you go, has, has this been a every year thing? No, this will be the second time. Definitely getting that open venue to discuss and do it a live show and that, that should be that should be huge as far yeah. as um you're gonna you know blow the roof off of that place <laughs> oh my people keep telling me that and it's like i don't see that for myself like it's so weird but no i did true crime podcast festival too and like it was um ethics and podcasting and they were like how do you go about not directly accusing someone of murder when you really know that they did it and i was like i don't i directly accuse them of murder i was like my dad michael turney killed Alyssa. And people started clapping, and it was the most unreal thing to me. Um, so I love meeting people in person. They get me so excited and hyped for this case and remind me that they are real people who really care, which, you know, like not having my family care too much about being involved in the case, these random strangers, if you will, mean a lot to me. Yeah, it's amazing what they can do as far as what just regular people you won't even know can one day just drop you a line on social or email or something and just say, you know, really support your cause or really, you know, hope we get answers. And it's just like, just that little thing, that little bit of acknowledgement can go so far. I, I cannot even imagine having to deal with not having your family, you know, being, being there for you and, or, you know, being there in general and just having to go about this pretty much. I mean, do you do this all by yourself or do you have like a management, management team? <laughs> 
<laughs> um, no, I do this all by myself. I mean, that's a full-time job. I mean, I understand that completely because it's, I mean, seriously, you've got to be dealing with media requests and got to be very busy. Yeah. I mean, luckily, yes. The The tides have turned from me begging every person I could think of to cover Alyssa's case to now people are coming to me. And I'm extremely grateful and humbled by it and never will forget where I came from. Um, and it's, I mean, it's amazing. Even though, yes, I am busy and tired and thank goodness you can't see the bags under my eyes. But again, I'm, I'm so grateful for it. Like I will always try to make it work because it's about getting the story out there. As long as I can do it in a way where I'm not extremely exhausted and can tell it in a good way, um, I, I'm happy to do it. It's really everything. And I know that this won't last forever. So I'm trying to get everything I can out of it in hopes of really, you know, making some movement happen in this case. Yeah, I definitely believe that it's strike while the iron's hot is one of those cliches that actually does apply to certain circumstances. And this is one of those. And I think that you're, you seem to be grabbing the bull by its horns and taking care of what you need to be doing. So um, I definitely think you're doing what everything in your power. I mean, again, anybody can check out your Twitter and see your list of shows that you've been on. It's just like, holy cow it's like a show every other day <laughs> i usually have an interview every week um which is it's great like i i could not ask for anything more and that's kind of the way that i feel about having a show like this or a show like who killed because those are shows where you can interview people that they've got a story to tell that don't have the answers that they need and it's so important for these people to get answers and if I can bring a platform for them to do so, hey, all the power to you. I, I just think it's amazing, your strength, that you've been able to deal with all this. Where do, where do things stand today as far as just your overall, you said, you know, there's isn't a relationship. I mean, do you have cousins, anybody, or is it kind of on your own because of your belief? I mean, I'm pretty much on my own, but not necessarily because of my belief, but because of the way I'm going about it. So, you know, I have four older brothers. Alyssa has four older brothers and all of them believed that our dad killed her before I did. I was literally the last one to come around because I was so under his thumb and so young and we were so close, but they don't agree with the way I'm doing it. They don't like this media route that I've chosen. Um, they think that I'm dragging the family name through the mud, which in one aspect I understand and I try to respect very much. Um, and in another, I, I can't help but think of Alyssa and how she would feel knowing that her brothers aren't fighting for her. I think it would break her heart in a way that her heart had never been broken. But, I, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you have some cousins come on, which is great. And they are supportive and we talk over social media and stuff. But I was so estranged from my family that we reunited as adults. Like I interviewed my aunt Teresa and we hadn't talked in 25 years before then. Um, so although I'm so grateful to have their support and we're building those relationships now, it's not anything I would say, you know, we're not super close. We're not texting. I'm not running ideas by them. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much an island, <laughs> which is totally fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's hard because I think we would be a lot stronger if we all united as a family. Definitely think that there's got to be some strain there as far as from your brothers. So so are these half brothers then? 
Yeah, they would all be half. So I like always forget to mention that we grew up with like no step, no half. So I, I'm still trained to just say brother and sister. Um, but technically, yes, they're all half. Okay, gotcha. Now, as far as the media thing goes, I've worked in media for a number of years. Obviously, I'm a big true crime person. The thing about media is, and I had this was a great thing that a reporter taught me during one of my internships. And it was like, listen, reporters are like lawyers. People hate you until they need you. <laughs> and the media is very much the same. You have learned how to make the media work for you. And that is what it's all about. And I think that may be the disconnect that your brothers don't see is that in this day and age, the way to keep it's the old John, it's not even this day and age it's the old john walsh mentality it's up to you to keep the case in the spotlight i mean it is because nobody else will carry the load for you and you've taken on this huge responsibility to be your sister's cheerleader i mean it, it there's nothing but nothing to be it's just so commendable it's it's ridiculous but I just think that, you know what I'm trying to say, it's just... Yeah, a lot of people don't understand why my brothers do what they do, and, and I don't have a lot of answers for them, but I, I mean, I get that question every day, and I literally just text one last night and said that, but yeah, I mean, it, it's hard, and I understand the fear of media, because we all walked into 2020, not all of us, but there were two brothers that participated, and none of us you know, expected it to, wait, to go the way it did. Um, but that's just the, the gamble you take with media, unfortunately. I mean, I feel like with podcasts, it's a very different medium. And um, they usually go exactly the way you think they will because of the interview aspect of it. They just generally don't chop it up and, and mix it around in different ways like um, larger sources might. So I get it. And yeah, I mean, I certainly favor podcasts, to be honest. Um, I don't love the way that the story has come out in a lot of traditional media, specifically local news. They tend to say, um, Alyssa went missing, there was a false confession, and now look how sad her sister is. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the story. Um, but yeah, so I get it. I get it. Media isn't always um, predictable, and that's scary. Yeah, and I get your concerns. It's very hard in today's media local media especially national they get a little bit more time to do it but there just isn't enough time to tell a story like the way that your sister's story needs to be told and that's where the podcast platform i think makes all the difference and you don't get long stories on local news i mean they're two minutes three minutes tops mm -hmm. maybe a four minute special if it's sweeps week or something like that but still what are you going to get across in four minutes you're going to get what you just said oh she went missing and her sister's sad that's why you take it and you run with it and you take control of the situation and go on podcasts. And like you said, it does make all the difference in the world when it's coming straight from your mouth. There isn't going to be any editing as far as like, you know, I'm not going to take something that you said at the back end of the podcast, put it at the front of the podcast and make it sound like you said one thing instead of another. And Exactly. You know, and, and we I all know, run into that on podcasts. Yeah. It, <laughs> no, it seems like we're all pretty straight shooters as far as that kind of stuff goes and if that starts to change then then we're all in trouble so um, <laughs> let's just hope we all uh, mind our p's and q's when it comes to that kind of thing because honestly it, it is i think that's what makes podcasting so fabulous is that it does give you an opportunity to tell the story the way you want it to be told and not anywhere not any way else i mean there's no but no other way that your story can be told through a reporter's perspective it's just easier to go to the person that is going through it and have them tell it because 
I mean, don't you, I mean, I know it's difficult, but don't you agree that you feel like since you've been able to take control of the situation, take control of the story yourself, you're better off now? Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, it's changed everything. And the cool thing about podcasting, especially right now in the true crime genre, is it is truly the Wild West. Um, which, like, last night I was, um, you know, Voices for Justice ranked in, like, the top 50. And I realized that I was the only creator on there in the top right there that just had a name underneath the podcast. It wasn't a production company. It wasn't a news channel. It wasn't some larger conglomerate. It was mm-hmm. just my name, Sarah Turney. And that really struck me. Like, it, it's unreal. It's very hard to find another platform in which it's kind of an equal playing field that I can come in here, record in my closet on my old laptop and hit the same rank as people who are, you know, in these major production companies and studios and that have marketing dollars and that have producers and editors and real photographers. It It's definitely changed everything. It's this huge opportunity and I'm super excited about it. And what's cool is that I'm going off case record. You know what I mean? It's not as if I'm really trying to dramatize this thing. In fact, I'm trying to do the opposite. Um, but yeah, I have this opportunity to tell it in such extreme detail that would be unreasonable to expect anyone else to get into. Um, and I think that that's made all the difference. Like these are the things that people want to know. I'm on, gosh, episode nine and I'm not even till like, I'm at like 2006. Like we still have like 15 years to go or whatever. Um, so yeah, I've never been able to tell it in this much detail um, with this much accuracy and on such an, a great platform that I feel is very equal. Like you can't even do that on YouTube anymore, let alone trying to get into Netflix or Hulu or these very large production companies. It's just, it's an unreal opportunity that has brought so many new listeners to this case and so many new eyeballs on it. And yeah, it's, it's one of the best things I've ever done for this case. Yeah. I definitely think that you, you recognize that too. And that that's the most important thing. And, and you're right about being able to just go in your closet, kind of do it the way that you want to do it. And Boom, you're in the top 50. I mean, you have a very interesting case. You're very well spoken. You can present the case without sounding vengeful or. uh, Yeah. Well, I don't go on there and say, my dad killed my sister. I go on there and say, you know, on February 2nd, whatever year, my father bought concrete and lime. Mm-hmm. and like leave it there like you know that's for you guys to figure out I, I'm just trying as much as as yes I have to admit that it does point towards my father it's not intentionally made that way I lay everything out as well as going into other suspects you know I'm gonna have a whole episode on on exploring every possible theory which includes the theory that somebody else could have killed her it's so I'm trying to present it as fairly as possible, but the evidence does very much point to one person, and that's undeniable. That's the one thing that we kind of been beating around the bush here, as far <laughs> as um, as far as the whole thing goes. What is your theory on what actually happened? Yeah, I mean, I myself even go back and forth on the actual logistics of that day. But I think a lot of things point to the fact that this was planned. We have a note that Alyssa left. She said that, you know, she was running away to California, that she didn't want to be there anymore, and that she saved her money for this specific purpose, and then she signed it with her name. You know, the note was analyzed, and it is her handwriting. However, they do believe that certain parts of the note were written on different days. And she didn't take her money. So I think my father found this note days before, or who knows really how long before Alyssa was gone. He forced her to add the line, Dad, I took $300 from you and her name. 
which are the parts that we believe are written on a different day, and that he did something toward that day. I, I think it was very much planned for the last day of school because that way you don't have teachers looking for you. You don't have students needing to go to the counselor. It evokes no type of urgency from the school. Because if you look at cases today, you know, kids go missing all the time, unfortunately, and they do things like they desk in the middle of the courtyard or they have a, an assembly for everybody to talk about it and express their feelings or whatever. And, you know, on the last day of school, that's not going to happen. Um, and then, of course, the way she was reported evoked no search. You know, one thing we didn't touch on is that my father's ex-law enforcement, he used to be a cop. Like, he would know how to report this in such a way that would evoke any type of search, and he didn't do that. You know, at one point, years later, um, they actually don't even have my dad's phone number. They have to send him a postcard. So I think it was premeditated. I think... He um, was saving that note and waiting to strike. And for whatever reason on that day, I think he did it then. You know, it could have been. Um, there are two incidents before in which he took Alyssa out to the middle of the desert and tried to sexually assault her. So I think he picked her up out of school early, tried to sexually assault her. Um, they got in an argument or something to that effect and he had enough. You know, um, a year prior to her disappearance, he went through a pretty large fiasco with him, with her accusing him of sexually abusing her in a similar fashion. She ran to a neighbor's house and asked for help. Like, I, I don't know how much more clear it could be, um, but I think it was a similar situation. And he realized he didn't want to go through another summer of hell of defending himself and um, justifying himself to the family about what, what the hell happened. So, yeah, I, I think it was part premeditated and part spur of the moment. But I think he'd just been waiting for his opportunity. On the last day of school, that's not going to happen. Um, and then, of course, the way she was reported evoked no search. You know, one thing we didn't touch on is that my father's ex-law enforcement, he used to be a cop. Like, he would know how to report this in such a way that would evoke any type of search, and he didn't do that. You know, at one point, years later, um, they actually don't even have my dad's phone number. They have to send him a postcard. So I think it was premeditated. I think he um, was saving that note and waiting to strike. And for whatever reason on that day, I think he did it then. You know, it could have been. Um, there are two incidents before in which he took Alyssa out to the middle of the desert and tried to sexually assault her. So I think he picked her up out of school early, tried to sexually assault her. Um, they got in an argument or something to that effect, and he had enough. You know, um, a year prior to her disappearance, he went through a pretty large fiasco with him, with her accusing him of sexually abusing her in a similar fashion. She ran to a neighbor's house and asked for help. Like, I, I don't know how much more clear it could be, um, but I think it was a similar situation. And he realized he didn't want to go through another summer of hell of defending himself and um, justifying himself to the family about what, what the hell happened. So, yeah, I, I think it was part premeditated and part spur of the moment. But I think he'd just been waiting for his opportunity. Thank you so much to Sarah Turney for taking time out of her busy, busy life to discuss this very personal story with us this week. And I just wanted to say thank you guys for tuning in again to another episode. I hope you guys tune in next week for part two of my conversation with Sarah. As a reminder, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, and that is wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For the second year in a row, I will be representing Who Killed who Killed Amy Mihalovic and My Passion Case on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando. And again, this is definitely a bucket list item for any true crime fanatic. The new dates are October 30th through November 1st, which will be Halloween weekend, and I imagine it's going to be a lot of fun. If you want to save money on your ticket, you can use my promo code AMY2020. If you enjoy this podcast and my other shows, you can help support independent journalism 
by clicking on the donate button on the left hand side of slowburnmedia.com that is slow minus the w you can also contribute to the show via the venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3 i will also provide a link in the show notes every contribution helps keep these slow burn podcasts running you can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I will be dropping new episodes of my Passion Case uh, pretty soon. And again, those will include episodes with Kelsey German, True Crime Files, Evidence Locker, etc. If you have any information regarding any of the cases that I've covered that are unsolved, you can reach the FBI at one 800 call FBI. And if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases I have covered, as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And thank you guys again so much for listening this week. And until next time, please be healthy and stay safe. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. 